Easy, easy, easy. Have a seat. We have had a fantastic beginning of the school year. I, I am so impressed with what God is doing, with your engagement, uh, also in my classes. How many students do I have here from the three of the classes I teach? You guys are doing great, awesome. You're on track, you're doing your homework. I just want to say it's been a great beginning of the academic school year. I'm fired up. Uh, what God is doing in our lives here in chapel, in the classrooms, residence halls, uh, athletic fields, it's just fantastic, and I'm very, very thrilled. It's, it's always good to have a good start. Like to be up five points uh, in a basketball game in the first five minutes, it'd be great. It's great to make the first touchdown in the football game. It's good to have a great start in a cross-country run, all of that. So you guys have made a great start and that's fantastic. It's best to have a good start. Just know that the start also has to have a finish, and so it's all about getting to the finish line, and we do it one class at a time, one assignment at a time, one semester at a time, one year at a time. We're going to get to where God has called us to be as long as we stay focused on what He's called us to do. So I'm, I'm proud of you. It's going to be a great year. Now, uh, this morning, I'm going, to, I'm going to launch a series that uh, Josh and I are going to do together this semester. Maybe we'll extend it into the, into the spring semester, but we're going we're gonna to take you into a, a New Testament book that is probably one of, the, one of the most easy books of the Bible to read. If you, you're not much into the Bible or you haven't been much in the Bible or you're newer to faith, you don't know a lot of theology, this or that, it's very practical, it's very upbeat, it's very positive. And uh, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians, and uh, it's going to be incredible. Uh, Pastor Josh, he will come up you know, next week, and he'll do uh, his first message. But I want to launch into that message, that series of messages, and uh, I want you to know that uh, the book of Philippians is the happiest book in the Bible. Like over 16 plus times in this four-chapter letter, and really it's a letter, if you know your Bibles, the books of the Bible primarily are all letters that were written, and we call them books, and, and we use them because God anointed those writings to be a benefit not only to the original people that received them, but for it to be a blessing to us. We hear the voice of God through the books of the Old Testament, through the books and letters of the New Testament, and the book in the New Testament that is the most optimistic, upbeat of all the parts of the New Testament, it would definitely be the book of Philippians. And so we've entitled this series uh, uh, appropriately, since it's such a joyful letter, we have, we have titled this series from Philippians, Joy in Jail. <laughs> and you're probably saying, like, what in the world are you talking about? Joy in Jail. Well, first of all, joy is because Philippians is the happiest book in our Bibles, and the word joy, rejoice, gladness is scattered throughout this four-chapter letter. And it's written as though the writer was basking poolside uh, in beautiful 85-degree weather, living life, uh, just having a great relaxing season of his life. And because he's feeling so relaxed and so full of joy, circumstances have come my way. I just feel so joyful. I'm going to write this beautiful letter that when you follow Jesus, everything is going to be wonderful. You're never going to have any challenges. And we wish we could say amen to that. <laughs> I mean, the theme verse in, in Philippians is Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And it's appropriate, even expected to write something like that, Philippians 4.4, when life is wonderful, like life is fantastic. You have good news after good news after good news. Everything that you are planning is coming to fruition, and you haven't had a bad day. You can't even remember when you had a bad day. And when you're living that kind of experience, it's easy to write Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Like it's always easy to rejoice in the Lord when it's always a great day. And so we would expect that. But this series is called Joy in Jail. And why the word jail? Why the word jail? Well, it's a good question because people that are in jail are not experiencing joy. So why are you saying this letter is about joy in jail? Joy in jail is a contradiction in terms. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's, a, it's irony at best, and it's a flat-out joke at worst. The idea that you could have joy in jail. But that's exactly why these two words best describe this New Testament letter written by the man, the Apostle Paul. He's writing the New Testament's most upbeat letter, the most confident letter, the letter of all New Testament letters that exudes happiness and confidence and infectious optimism, a letter that was written not poolside, but it was written from prison. History records a number of unjust imprisonments. Let me give you a couple in recent history. Martin Luther King Jr. August 1963, he was incarcerated for a peaceful protest. And uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, he's imprisoned. And in that prison experience, he writes his, his famous letter from a Birmingham jail defending his use of nonviolence to challenge segregation and racism. And so here's a quote from his book. Beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets, referring to Old Testament prophets, they left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left the little village of Tarsus, carried the gospel of Jesus to practically every hamlet and city in the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to preach the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. And so like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. That last phrase, Macedonian call for aid, he is referencing a biblical uh, connection to this letter that we call the letter to the church at Philippi. I'll get to that in just a moment. Another unfair incarceration was Nelson Mandela, known and loved around the world for his commitment to peace, negotiation, reconciliation. Nelson Mandela was long after his incarceration, he became the democratically elected president of South Africa. It was amazing, and he served from 1994 to 1999. Mandela was an anti-apartheid revolutionary, political leader. He was a philanthropist. He had an abiding love for children. But before attaining those high levels of esteem and achievement, Mandela spent 24 years in prison for his opposition to racial injustice in South Africa that was called apartheid. His life captured in the book A Long Walk to Freedom, which I would recommend that every student read because it's a classic read. 
It's a rags-to-riches story, literally prison-to-presidency, how God took a man in the injustices of prison, yet he kept his cool, he kept his head, he understood that there was still a purpose in his life, and from that prison he becomes the president of South Africa. So we have Martin Luther King, we have Nelson Mandela, and we also have Apostle Paul, in whom is our is our author, is the, is the writer of the book of Philippians. This letter to the Philippians was written around 62 A.D. to a church in the city of Philippi. And uh, he writes this letter to a church, a church that Paul founded, that he started years earlier. He traveled to Philippi. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment. And so now he's in another prison later in life, and he's writing a thank you to them, and he's thanking the church, and he's pushing them to keep trusting God, and he's pushing them to continue to be generous with their lives. But the keynote fact about this letter is that Paul is writing from a Roman prison. So let me slow down a little bit, because it's critical that you understand how important context is when it comes to messaging. Understanding context. If you just read the words, the words are content and they're good, but if you don't understand the background or the context from which where those words are coming, you miss the powerful truth of that content. So let me give you an illustration. Uh, Let's say the message is, I need water. I need water. Without context, you're not getting the real message. Uh, I send you a text. And in the text, I simply say, I need water. But without context, you just assume, oh, Dr. Graham is thirsty, and he's wanting me to get him a glass of water. And so you casually stop what you're doing, and you look around for a glass, you look around for a water bottle, you look around for a spigot, and you just kind of, you know, Dr. Graham's thirsty, I'm trying to find him some water, and you finally get some water and you bring it to me, but the problem is you didn't bring it on time. I've died already because you didn't know that I was choking on a vitamin (laughs) and I needed that water to get that vitamin dislodged and I died. (laughs) Context matters. Or maybe what you didn't understand is when I texted you, I was in a hurry. I, couldn't, I didn't have the time to give you the context. I just said I need water, but I didn't tell you how much water I needed because what was happening is my office, there was an electrical short that lit something on fire, and my office was on fire. And when you got there, it was too late. My point is this. Context tells us more than just the content itself. Paul writes... Philippians 4.4, 4, already read it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And he makes a double emphasis. Again, let me say it, rejoice. And you might say to yourself, that is a familiar verse. In fact, I think my grandma needle-pointed that on a pillow that gave it to me as a graduation present. And it's in my dorm room. And it's a lovely little thing. That's great, but context tells us more than just what the content is telling us. Paul, in writing this letter that's so optimistic, is telling us something more than just the content of the words. He's telling us the depth of the meaning of those words because of the situation that he's finding himself in. He is in a Roman prison. He's in stocks and bonds, literally. He is is chained to a wall, no doubt. And he's saying that Jesus is worth rejoicing over in any situation. 
I'm not just saying, hey, it's nice to rejoice in the Lord and all, you know, in all your ways, and we think, oh yeah, it's easy to do that when you've got a perfect life. No, but when someone is telling you to rejoice in the Lord always and you know that they are in prison, they are going through a hard time, and they themselves exhibit this enthusiasm, this joy in the Lord regardless of their circumstances, the content goes much deeper. There is a possibility of having joy in jail. So it's super, under, super important that you understand this immediate context as we begin this series of messages throughout this letter so that you can understand that joy can overcome your problems. Joy can be bigger than your problems. Joy can be bigger than your situation. That's the theme of this letter. That's going to be the theme of our series. And yes, Josh and I know that none of you are in prison, literally. But we all know that all of you and all of us, myself included, experience on regular intervals jail-like experiences, jail-like circumstances. Maybe not literally jail, but the hopelessness of jail, the restriction of jail, the loneliness of jail. Whatever that case may be, we can feel those same emotions as though we were literally in jail. A problem, an impossibility, a hardship, a situation that makes us feel confined and restricted, a circumstance that's not fair. It wasn't our fault. And maybe it's really unjust, some things that are happening to me. Listen, the, the secret to life is this. Write this down. The secret to life is overcoming the odds. The, the secret to life is understanding that Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit enables you to overcome the odds. The odds are stacked against you. You are facing an impossibility. You don't know how you're going to solve a problem. You're dealing with the odds that are stacked against you, and you can overcome them, and joy helps you to do that. Now, for Paul, prison was not a stranger to him. Prison-like problems should not be a stranger to us. We should become accustomed to another episode of what it feels like to be imprisoned by fear and anxiety and impossibility and difficulty. I, I found this to be very interesting, that someone researched and did some equations of Paul's adult life as a missionary and all of his travels. And if you read through the book of Acts... You come to understand that on several occasions, Paul was put in prison for his preaching of the gospel. An, estimate, an estimated amount of time, 25% of his missionary life was spent in prison. That's a lot of time. And you might say to yourself, well, what was prison like? I'll tell you that it wasn't anything like the prisons that we have today. There's a few pictures I have on the screen behind me. Prisons in this uh, era of time, Roman prisons especially, were filthy. They were poorly ventilated. They were underground. These prisons would have been divided into outer uh, sections and intersections. The, the inner parts of a prison would have been deeper in the ground and much darker, far more secure. There was no such thing as individual cells. You would have been put as a group with other people, chained to the walls. If you were bleeding because before you were imprisoned, you were stripped and flogged, which was a common occurrence, which was humiliating and painful, a bloody ordeal, your wounds were not taken care of. You would sit in your pain, you would sit in your puddle of blood as you were chained to a wall or to a bench. 
Your clothing would have been mutilated. You would not have been given any other garments other than what you wore going into prison. This is why Paul, in one of his last letters, asks for his cloak while he's in prison. It's because he's probably very cold. My good friend, Pastor Mike Burnett, who was our mowing chair a couple of years ago, preached through the book of Philippians, and I like how he described the situation for Paul. I'm just going to quote something from his sermon. Paul endured more suffering than any pastor or church planner that I've ever met or heard of. He was physically, and this comes from 2 Corinthians 11, he was physically beaten multiple times, he was, he was examined by flogging, he was arrested several times, he was imprisoned multiple times, he was chased by angry mobs, he was lied about, shipwrecked, left for dead, stoned on a couple of occasions, and yet he maintained his passionate love for the Lord and his love for God's people, and he wrote with honest candor and humility about the abiding passion that he had to always choose joy in every circumstance. His perspective can be our perspective. His way of handling the difficulties of life can be the exact way you handle your difficulties in life. And you are saying, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I? What do I do? Is there, what's practical that I can do to somehow trigger joy in a situation that is not joyful? We're not asking you and God's not asking you to deny reality. Like, 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 like make believe you don't have bad circumstances. That's not faith. Faith is not disbelieving a reality of a difficulty that you are in or going through. So you don't have to deny the reality of what you're going through. But faith helps us to see something bigger in the midst of what you're going through. And that's what can give us joy. And that's what faith enables us to do. To believe that there's something happening bigger than this jail that I'm experiencing now. So there's three things that we can do. Number one, if you are in a jail-like experience, a situation that is bad, difficult, unfair, unjust, and you just want to scream, you want to hit back, you want to take vengeance, all these kinds of things that's kind of a normal human reaction to difficulty, number one, focus. Focus. Take a deep breath. Focus and don't get confused. Don't become confused. And what I mean by this is that when we go through these jail-like experiences, the very first thing that tends to come to our mind is that God is not with us. That God, where are you, God? That's what we say. We're in this jail-like experience. Like, God, where are you? And what you need to focus on is your good theology, the theology of the omnipresence of God, the complete sovereignty of God, that in your difficult, unfair, upside-down jail imprisonment, whatever you want to call it, don't lose focus on true theology that tells us that God is always with us regardless of where we're at, what we're going through. So focus, don't lose your head, don't lose your theology, focus on this. Don't reject God's sovereignty. Learn to trust that in fact, God may have sent you into that prison. Now, I'm not saying that God wills all the bad stuff in your life. What I'm saying is that in every difficulty, there might be a direct reason God put you there, or maybe there's something that God wants to do through that bad time. It's the Romans 8:28 passage that all things work together for good, not just the good things, but even the bad things. So lo don't lose your focus. Now, <clears throat> here's how it happened for Paul. 
I don't wanna, I'm not going to take you to any other text in the book of Philippians, but I want to I give you the backstory real quickly on why Paul even went to Philippi in the first place. Paul was very serious about following God to the very detail of his instruction. He's been saved. He's been radically transformed. He has the call of God to be the, the, the church's first missionary. And so he sets out on these missionary journeys to go where the gospels had, had never been preached before. He's a pioneer. He wants to go where no man has ever gone before. And he has this ambition. Like, I've, we need to get to Asia we need to get to the continent of Asia because there's no doubt millions of people that haven't heard the gospel yet. So he has this ambition to go to Asia, but Acts 16.6 tells us, quote, that the spirit of Jesus would not allow him to go. Now, we don't know what that means. What does it mean the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go? I, I don't know. It could be any number of things, but it it, it may have been a word from God, it may have been a vision, it may have been any number of things, but Paul knew that he knew that he knew, though he wanted to go to Asia, God said, no, you're not going to Asia. And so that night, Paul has a vision, and he sees what, we, what is called the man from Macedonia. Okay, we already, ref, Martin Luther King referred to the man from Macedonia, so here it is from Acts chapter 16. He sees this man from Macedonia, and this man is calling out, come over here, Come over here. We need your help. And Paul recognizes that to be the supernatural voice of God describing the will of God. I wanted to go over here. God said no, didn't give him a reason. He has a vision. He sees, here's a guy from Macedonia saying, we need you over here. And Paul says, that is the will of God. So Acts 16, 11, from Troas, we set out to sea. We sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day we went on to Neapolis. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi. A Roman colony, the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and there we stayed for several days. What happened in those several days? Well, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, gives us some description. Verses 16 through 18, it tells us that when we got to Philippi, this is my own paraphrase, we went to the place where believers were praying. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. Very few Jewish people lived there, uh, proven by the fact that they've never found a synagogue in Philippi. You, you could have a synagogue if you had 10 adult Jewish males. They didn't even have 10 adult Jewish males in Philippi. No Jewish synagogue. But there are people that are religious and seeking after God, and they pray at a certain place. And so Paul and Silas go to that place where they're praying. And he begins to preach. He begins to minister to them. And all of a sudden, he runs into a, 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 a young woman who the Bible says is a fortune teller. She had a spirit by which she was able to predict the future. So she's demon-possessed. And as she's hearing Paul and Silas preach the gospel, she kind of in the fringe of those gatherings in the background is, is mimicking their, their preaching. She's saying the right words content-wise. The Bible says, she said, these men are servants of the Most High who are telling you the way to be saved. Right content, but it was the wrong context. And she was saying this over and over again. And finally, Paul knew that she was not speaking from a heart of belief, but a heart of mockery. And he turns on her and she says, in the he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And she is, she is delivered completely from that demon. Now, what, you didn't, what I didn't explain is that this demon-possessed girl was being trafficked 
She was being used by other men with her ability to predict things. They were selling her services to people, and they were getting all the cash. So they were making money off of her. And all of a sudden, she's delivered of that ability. She's delivered from that demonic possession, which is a wonderful day for her, but it's a bad day for all those people that were making money off of her. And those men create a problem. Acts 16, 19 says, when the owners of this little girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Okay, they seized them. That word means they apprehended them physically, took them by, you know, Seize them, literally, and they, and they dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 22, the crowd joined in and attacked, against, attacked Paul and Silas. The magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, which is flogging. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when they received these orders, he put them in an inner cell, okay, an inner cell, deeper, much darker, and he fastened their feet in stocks. They weren't just thrown in jail. They were imprisoned to the wall. All right, so how do you choose joy in jail? First of all, don't lose your focus. Don't get confused. Don't think that God's left you. Don't lose your theology. And there's a second thing you need to do. You need to sing. You need to sing. What does it say in Acts 16.25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Are you kidding me? I mean, I love what Jeff is all constantly exhorting us about. Worship is not a feeling. Worship is not a feeling. Worship is not driven by circumstance. Worship is. Worship is because God is. And I don't know what hymn they were singing. If, if, if he was, you know, listening to Caleb or, you know, Air One or one of those things, I'm sure that he was singing, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. There's a guy who's singing in jail because the goodness of God was not defined by his circumstance. Paul had been saved. He'd been, he'd been transformed. He'd been born again. He'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. He had, been, he had been set apart to tell the good news, and this life wasn't even worthy of him, and so he was ready to die. Prison didn't throw him at all. You got to sing in jail. You got to sing in jail. And then lastly is this. You need to get ready. You need to get ready. Because jail is always a launching pad to something greater. Your difficulty, your impossibility, your whatever it is, how you define a jail experience, it's setting you up for something greater. Every jail experience is a stepping stone to something beyond. There's always something after jail. For Paul, Acts 16, 26 says, suddenly there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. And once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose, the jailer woke up and he saw the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because if any of those prisoners get away, I'm gonna, it's going to be my life. And he assumes with the doors open, the, the prisoners are gone. And Paul shouts, hold, hold it, don't harm yourself, we're still here. 
You see, for Paul and Silas, their post-jail experience was not necessarily the miracle of, of being able to be free, but it was the incredible opportunity to lead the jailer and his entire family to Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. The Bible tells us in the very next verse, the jailer called for the lights, false trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and he asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Question. What if Paul and Silas were in jail and they were moaning and complaining? Talking about giving up on God? Oh God, all we do is serve you and you put us in jail. You're not a good God. Whining, pitiful. Would that have caused the jailer to say, I want to get saved because your testimony is so negative. <laughs> no. Has to be that the jailer was so moved that these men would sing in prison. Like, who does that except someone whose life is empowered by God? I want you to stand to your feet as we close this portion of our Friday chapel. I want you to close your eyes. And faculty and staff that are here this morning, today, I want you, uh, actually right now, if you would, I want you to come down to the front. If you're faculty, staff, just come on down to the front because we're going to give opportunity for students to be prayed for this morning. Friday is the day in chapel where we extend beyond our 50-minute chapel to another 30 minutes or so to pray and to fast. And some of you have class, and we understand that. But even if you have class at noon, maybe, maybe for five minutes, maybe an additional five minutes, you'd come forward and you'd let one of these faculty and staff lay their hands on your shoulders and pray for you. Especially if you are experiencing a jail situation. I'm not talking about literally, of course, but I'm talking about a, a burden, a fear, an anxiety, a situation that maybe isn't your situation. Maybe it's something at home. It's something that your parents are going through, a brother or sister that's going through, and you'd want to be prayed over like in proxy for someone else. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many of you this morning as students would say, Dr. Graham, I've never been to jail, but what Paul is saying I need that because my circumstances are, are, are yelling at me to not be happy. My circumstances are distracting me from the joy of the Lord. In fact, my circumstances have recently robbed me of my joy. It's like I was happy. I was so full of God two days ago, and I woke up this morning, and it's like all gone. But I'm hearing you, Dr. Graham. I'm going to keep focused. I'm not going to lose my focus that God never changes. My circumstances do, but God doesn't change. And he's worthy of my praise, and I want to be joyful. If you're here this morning, raise your hand. I'm in jail, and I need prayer, and I'm going to come forward. Yes, lots of hands, lots of hands. Okay, as, as the worship team leads us in a song, and we're going to transition right into our, our time of fasting and praying, Come forward for prayer. I would encourage any DLs in the house right now, if you're a DL and you've got some men on your floor or women that are on your floor, uh, gather them around. Have let, like five minutes of praying together. Let this be a tradition in our Fridays to extend a little bit longer for praying and praying for each other. And so if you need prayer, you raise your hand, come forward, and let's 
trust God that he's going to help us to literally experience joy in jail. Come forward and let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.